Welcome back to the Traders Point Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. Each week, we open up the Bible for just a few minutes and discuss God's Word together. We discuss its meaning and the ways in which we can apply it in our walk as followers of Christ. If you'd like more information about the Traders Point Church of Christ, you can visit our website at traderspointchurch.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and YouTube as well. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please take just a second to do that so you can stay up to date on all of the content that's put out on this channel. Thanks again for joining us, and enjoy today's conversation. Thank you once again for studying along with us. I'm Jeremy, and I've got John here with me, and we studied from the Gospel of Mark beginning last week, and we're going to push through Mark really the rest of this year. Um, So each and every Monday, uh, we'll cover the next chapter. We covered Mark chapter 1 last week. And now we'll cover Mark chapter 2 this week. So uh, we we may not do this every week of trying to go backwards and work on our way through context, but since we're still kind of at the very beginning, John, why don't you just give us a a few second rundown on, you know, maybe how Mark begins and kind of where Mark chapter 1 gets us. By the time we get into Mark chapter 2, I mean, we are moving, you know, at this point. So uh, maybe catch us up to where we are, and then we'll spend a few minutes in in talking about Mark chapter 2. We talked last week just about how Mark doesn't begin the way that Matthew or Luke does with Jesus' birth and those types of things. Mark begins as with Jesus as a grown man, and he is on the uh, outskirts of his ministry and begins that full throttle. And we talked about how the Gospel of Mark moves relatively quickly, and really even in chapter 1, you know, you get this repetitiveness of immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. As Mark begins to take us through the demands that Jesus had on his time and his energy and his attention from the outset of his ministry, and so that's very obvious as you read chapter 1, just how much Jesus had going on, how much was on his plate, and and we even talked about just all of the people that wanted his attention, and that's made mention several times there in verse or in chapter one. You know, the whole city's gathered together at his door, and then you know we had talked about how Jesus got up very early in the morning to find some solitary time to pray, and you know, no sooner than that's happened, then everybody's looking for him, and it's off to the races again. And we're really going to see that theme continue here at the beginning of chapter 2 as some of those same realities that Jesus is just experiencing pretty much every single day of, of just throngs of people coming to see him, talk to him, wanting something for, from him. It, it's overwhelming to think about just how many people were around Jesus day in and day out, and all that they wanted from him, and yet his compassion, his love, his desire to help just uh, shone through all of that. And we talked about uh, a little bit last week about how Mark gives us kind of that purpose for Jesus coming, that Jesus acknowledges that the kingdom is at hand, and it's time to repent and to believe in the gospel, and and that's going to drive and to motivate his message to the people moving forward. And so chapter 1 does a good job. While it doesn't necessarily do the introductory things that Matthew and Luke does, it still sets the stage very well for Jesus' purpose and what he's going to be doing over the rest of this book. 
Yeah, and when we get into Mark chapter 2, I mean, it's interesting, you know, to me, a couple of things kind of stand out, you know, kind of here at the very beginning. You you made mention that, you know, Mark will continue with this theme, right? In in chapter 1, we had Jesus, uh, he's healing people, a a countless, really, amount. I mean, Mm -hmm. the end of Mark chapter 1 there, or towards the middle, you know, it just makes mention that he just, he healed many people. I mean, what was the number of that? I don't know. I mean, they were surrounding the house, right? I mean, so... You know, we, we see him specifically heal Peter's mother-in-law. We see him specifically in the synagogue cast out a demon uh, that had possessed a man. And uh, we see him then just make mention of he did that a lot of other times, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just yeah. a lot of other right. times. And it, we see him, uh, there's a leper that's cleansed at the end of chapter 1. And, and, and now when we get into chapter 2, we see some of that as well. But we also, what comes to the front is some of the teaching from Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that Mark almost gets very quickly into two of, I mean, I want to say controversial, but it's only controversial to people who, you know, disagree with it. But, you know, two of the more problematic pieces of teaching that Jesus Mm -hmm. will will ever have with those who are opposing to him. And so you have very similar, you made mention there at the very outset and the beginning of Mark chapter two, where, you know, he just tells us you have that word immediately. We made mention of that, you know, last week. You know, that there in verse 2, uh, you know, they uh, immediately many uh, gathered together around the house uh, where he was. Uh, there's, there's no longer even room. There's no room in the house. And so you have some men who have a, a, someone who is paralyzed, and they work their way, you know, to Jesus. And Jesus heals him, but it, it is the way in which he heals him. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it really is at the heart of one of the two biggest issues that Jesus will have against those who oppose him. The one right here, which we'll talk about, and then the other at the very end of this chapter. But it's interesting how he heals here. You know, it's not, you know, listen, you know, grab your bed and get up and walk. Jesus says, I could have done that, but he chooses a different way. Now he is teaching in a lot of ways. And so he says, your your sins are forgiven. And of course, a lot of people are having problems with that (laughs) because in their mindset is, well, uh, only one can forgive sins, and that's God. And again, from Jesus's perspective, he doesn't di- he doesn't disagree with that that's statement. Right, yeah. He doesn't disagree with that. And so, it is an incredible moment of teaching here that a load of people have big, big problems with. Yeah, you know, it mentions that some of the Pharisees are are sitting nearby. You know, that's obviously a group of people that that closely have their eyes on Jesus and. Um, are very concerned with some of the things that he is teaching and, and certainly who he claims to be. And, and you're right, He, when he sees this paralytic, he says to him that your sins are forgiven. And when they question that, his response to them is, you know, well, what's easier? You know, is it is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or, or to make him walk? And he uses this opportunity to perform the miracle of making him walk again, mm-hmm to solidify his ability and his authority to forgive sins. And I think that that idea that surrounds the authority that Jesus has as God in the flesh to forgive sins, you made mention of it at the end. We're going to talk about the authority that he has over the Sabbath. It's a different type of authority, but authority is at the crux of both of these. And that is going to be something that the Pharisees especially continue to challenge Jesus on, because Jesus is going to lay claim to the authority over sin, 
the authority over the Sabbath, the authority over physical realm, the physical realm. He is going to claim authority in those areas. And the Pharisees are going to say, hold on a second, who are you to claim that authority? But Jesus is using miracles. He's going to use the form of teaching and parables that we'll talk about in a few weeks. He's going to use these tools that he has available to him to prove that he does, in fact, have the, th- the authority over these things. He can forgive someone of their sins. No one else can, but he can because he's God in the flesh. He does have the authority over the Sabbath day. No one else does, but he does because he's God in the flesh. And so he's going to continue to use these teaching moments as he goes to convince us as the readers and the people who are around him in those days that he is who he says he is, and because of that, he does have the authority over these things that they're questioning him about. Yeah, and they're questioning, you know, it's interesting here, I mean, it, it, it's a miracle in of itself on Jesus reading the hearts and minds of these folks, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, in verse 7, you know, they're they're kind of, you know, to themselves talking about, well, this is blasphemous, what he's doing, who can forgive sins but man alone, and then, you know, you have verse 8 that, you know, Jesus perceived within himself that they're talking about these things. And so he takes that moment to teach. And it's interesting that he he agrees. I mean, that that's, you know, he doesn't argue. There's not an argument to be made right. here. He, he, he It's interesting that he's like, you are right on the money, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the, you yeah. know, that's the instance that he says there in verse 10. You know, I've yeah. done this that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Yeah. You, you are exactly right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, A plus, here's your sticker. Mm-hmm. Jesus was like, that's exactly right. But what I'm proving is that the Son of Man, myself, I have the power to do that on earth. So now you you draw you draw your conclusion. Mm-hmm. If only God can forgive sins, I'm not going to disagree with that. And here I am forgiving sins on earth. <laughs> what then does that mean? Well, that that means that I am deity. Mm-hmm. And so it's an incredible, powerful moment of teaching right here at the very beginning that he would continue to have big, big problems with the Pharisees, not just here, but, I mean, throughout the entirety of his ministry. Yeah, I I love, you know, verse number 12, the end of that verse. As all of this is taking place, he has now forgiven this man's sins. He has now made him able to stand up and walk. And, of course, just the, the complete nature of this miracle Here's a guy who has been lame. I'm sure his muscles are atrophied. You know, he, 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 even if he was able medically to be restored of his ability to walk, it would take him months or years to regain the strength to actually do that. But here's Jesus. He commands him to walk, and the guy hops up, carries his cot, and leaves. And it's just remarkable. And, and everybody around, what else do you say other than we've never seen anything like this? I mean, there is just, there is no comparison. They, they have nothing to, to compare Jesus to. They're in awe in the same way that we should be when we read this. We read this and we think, I, I've never heard or seen anything like this before. There is, there is no one else like Jesus. And that's what brought so many people to him. And of course, that's what challenged the Pharisees because here they are sitting there. They just saw this happen. But yet their stubbornness, their refusal to believe continued to cloud what was very obvious to everyone else around them, that this has to be the Son of God. And that's why so many people were coming to him, and so many began to believe 
in who he was because they were witnessing these things. And like you just said, there's just no other conclusion that you can come to if you're willing to be honest about what you just witnessed and what you just heard. And and that's really, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the invitation that all of us have when we read the story of Jesus is, are we going to be honest with what we're seeing and what we're hearing? And if so, the only logical conclusion to come to is that this is the Son of God who came to earth. And and it is just a fascinating snippet of that when we read those few verses. Yeah, he is, uh, he's got the power to forgive sins on earth because he is the Son of Man, a phrase that will come up again at the very end Mm -hmm. of this chapter. Before we get there, I want to take one quick aside. I do find it interesting that you know, beginning there in verse 13 through verse 17, Mark includes kind of another calling, if you will, of one of Jesus' apostles. We saw that in chapter 1 yep. um, with uh, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and we make mention last week that you know certainly Peter, James, and John p- play a, a significant role in the life of Jesus, more so than even the other nine yeah. apostles. I mean, there's just, there's no arguing that. And so, you know, Mark is going to make mention of of their calling, right? But what's interesting is, separated from that, but now you have, you know, him including a, another calling of one of his disciples, Levi or Matthew. But I think it's also significant, and it's significant because of his place, if you will, in society. We're told, and it's talked about significantly, that, listen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishers. Uh, you know, they were fishermen. Uh, Jesus used that, and the phrase that he uses, hey, I'm going to now make you fishers of men. We see them fishing throughout the stories right. and the gospel and other places. But now here, Matthew, and what he does for a living is also significant, yeah. that he is a tax collector. And that tax collector, in the way that the Pharisees will use them alongside of heathens and prostitutes, you you get a good idea of culturally, (laughs) certainly here uh, in this area of the world, culturally, what people were thinking of tax collectors. And and it's certainly significant significant enough for Mark to give us this section of Matthew being chosen as one of Jesus' closest of followers. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, you think about just the role that Matthew played in society. I mean, uh, as a tax collector, he was a Jew, but he was essentially employed by the Romans and, and loyal to them to the extent that oftentimes he was seen as a traitor. The tax collectors were seen as traitors by the Jewish people, they had a, a reputation of being very dishonest in their dealings with the people. And as a result of that, they were outcasts in a lot of ways. And I think you're right, the, 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 the special attention that's given to Matthew being called, I think it does several things. One, it, it just highlights the fact that there, there is no situation that Jesus can't call someone out of. You know, here, here's a guy who probably physically and materialistically was pretty well off, most likely. Mm-hmm. Most of the tax collectors were at that time. Right. But yet, an outcast of society, someone that the Jews would have despised, as you mentioned, oftentimes lumped them in with the lowest forms of society. And here Jesus is saying, come be one of my closest confidants. Come be with me day in and day out. Come follow me. And it really is a, just a beautiful picture of redemption, and it just highlights the fact that, that Jesus is coming to earth for everyone, and there is no one that he can't bring out of whatever situation they're in to be a follower of his. And that really becomes a theme with, with Christ. He, he's not going to the Pharisees and to the higher-ups in Jewish society 
and, and bringing them on board. Now, certainly they would be welcome, mm-hmm. but but those aren't the people that he's necessarily spending a lot of his time around. He, he's spending a lot of his time around tax collectors and sinners and and people who are lame and people who are poor and destitute and those are the people that he is calling out of those that that life to come and follow him and so it's a it's just a beautiful picture of redemption that we get here of Matthew. Yeah, we've made mention of the Pharisees several times and they play a big role in this chapter. We've made mention of them already at the beginning of the chapter, but you know, Jesus is going to cross paths again with them, you know, at the end of this chapter. And I yeah. do find it interesting that Mark is going to include pretty early on in his in his gospel, the, these two big, oh, huge sticking points with the Pharisees. Yep. And, and the Son of Man is the is the phrase that's used in both times. And, and you made the point, and rightly so, that in each of these things, there is a, there's a point to be made about Jesus' authority. And certainly his authority as God, which he claims to be and doesn't argue yep. with, you know, at the outset, but even his authority over the Sabbath. Yep. And, and and so you have there, beginning in verse 23, you know, kind of a, a story, you know, of, of Jesus and his apostles, and uh, they're, they're plucking grain on the Sabbath. I was about to say doing work on the Sabbath, but I mean, what, <laughs> they're plucking grain on the Sabbath. But he comes in contact and crosses paths with the Pharisees again, and they they have a a big issue with this, and they're going to raise it with them. And this won't be the first time or the only time they raise an issue with Jesus uh, about the Sabbath and and about him. And he seems to almost go out of his way uh, to cross paths with them on the Sabbath because there's a point to be made, and he makes it at the very end of this chapter that the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. That... um, that it is an authority play. It is an authority play in every way, and it's an important lesson, uh, you know, for everybody, and certainly for the Pharisees, even though it was one they struggled with. And this is kind of going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this chapter. In the in the minds of the Pharisees, there is only one Lord of the Sabbath. There is only one person who has authority over the Sabbath, and it's God. And so again, just like when Jesus was saying. Uh, he's going to forgive this man of his sins and making that point. He's doing the very same thing here is that your understanding of the Sabbath and, and who has control over it isn't wrong. You just need to recognize that I'm he. I am the man. I am I am God in the flesh, and I have control and authority over the Sabbath. And again, that's difficult. I almost said impossible. It's not impossible, but certainly difficult for people in the position that the Pharisees are in to accept that, because that changes their whole concept of the religious structure that they have in place at this day and time. And it's going to challenge their perceived authority over the law and over the religious customs that they have in place to know that God in the flesh is walking among them. And that that's one of the big sticking points, and it comes up, as you mentioned, here in chapter 2, and it's going to rear its head nearly at every turn as he as he butts heads with the Pharisees on this issue time and time again. Well, that'd be a good place for us to stop. Listen, we could spend a lot of time talking about Jesus and his relationship with the Sabbath, but as you just mentioned, we're going to have opportunities to do that <laughs> as early as next right. week because chapter, chapter 3 begins with this exact same point with Jesus. He's going to heal somebody on the Sabbath, yep. and it's going to cause a big problem. So we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But we appreciate everybody studying along with us here in Mark chapter 2. If you missed our study of Mark chapter 1, You've only got to go back just one week to catch up. So uh, certainly uh, would encourage you to do that, and we'll move forward to Mark chapter 3 next week.